Welcome to episode 222 of Troubadours and Rakan Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's program, we have as our featured guest, professor and author Daniel Lowe. And we talk with Daniel Lowe about his recently published debut novel titled All That's Left to Tell. He shares a lot of great uh, bits of it with us. Very compelling. And we talk about also themes of persistence and what uh, it means to tell stories and how important to our humanity that is. We talk about writing and teaching, too. Daniel Lowe on this week's episode. We also have another finely crafted and well-read essay by our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare. That piece is titled, Skate Away Blues. We have an E.W. short essay by yours truly, entitled Humanity, and a poem titled The Weight. And all of this, of course, is ensconced within, as is always the case, several great tunes. Thank you so much for being with us. Let's get to it. Episode 222 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. you 
tree There'll be pennies from heaven For you and me Humanity. I suppose there is a common theme here. Humanity. What is humanity? What does it mean? What does it entail? Is it some way as extreme as those of the Jane? If one sees a snail, it should be allowed to prevail with its life. You won't squish it. Or is it more about the moral conscience to not bomb or counter-bomb other human beings to win, to send a message? Is humanity partly about debauchery and kill and maim, partly morally inept, intellectually insane? Are we supposed to, for a greater good, accept, remember, talk with one another despite past pain and conflict, disagreement and wayward confusion, persistence to better understand ourselves and each other, or a more narrow pursuit of survival and conquest of that which fulfills an individual or country's collective vision of success, righteousness, and outright winning. I suppose humanity is about love and sinning. When the road gets dark You can no longer see let my love throw a spark And have a little faith in me And when the tears you cry Oh, you can't believe Give these loving arms a try, baby and have a little faith in me And have a little faith in me And have a little faith in me I'm a whisper star 
have a little faith in me And when your back's against the wall Just turn around and you see I will catch you, I will catch you far So have a little faith Daniel Lowe. Yes, it is. Oh, thank you so much, sir, for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure. It's nice to have you on. My pleasure to be with you, E.W. Let's uh, get started first by letting people know who we're talking with. I'm sure some people do, but some may not. We're talking with Daniel Lowe, professor, author. Uh, he, run, he writes and works and lives near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His uh, fiction and poetry have appeared in West Branch, the Nebraska Review, the Montana Review, the Wisconsin Review, the Writing Room, the Bridge, the Patterson Literary Review, Ellipsis, Blue Stem, Midway Journal, and the Madison Review. And he has a novel that debuted very recently titled All That's Left to Tell, 
and it is getting some great reviews. It's nice to have you on the program. Uh, it's my pleasure to be with you. So I'd like to get right in to, uh, well, I read, I read the essay that uh, my associate producer, Dr. Pavis, shared, and it was wonderful. And, uh, Thank you. Yeah. I haven't, re- I haven't picked up the book yet, but I plan on it. Uh, the name great. Of, yeah, yeah. It sounds like it'd be a great read. Um, now, yeah. the, the essay on persistence, the lessons of a middle-aged debut novelist. Um, yes. Yeah, you talk about persistence. You talk about Reggie, I believe. Is yes, that, uh, a former student. Former student. And, you know, I guess I'll just let you take it from here. You want to tell us a bit about, first of all, the essay. Then we'll get, we'll get into the book a bit. I suppose they kind of intermingle. But persistence. Yes. Uh, the essay was actually born um, out of the writing of the novel. And uh, I, I wanted to take some time to uh, consider, uh, you know, what it meant to me uh, to publish this novel, which was really something of a surprise uh, later in my life. I had not, I had continued, uh, well, I started writing back in, of course, way back in high school and pursued it through my college years and through a graduate degree. And I graduated uh, from the University of Pittsburgh in 1983 with an MFA in fiction writing with the intent of continuing my writing career and being a writer. But um, like many people in the arts and many writers, uh, you have to find a way to um, make a living uh, and feed yourself and your family yeah. uh, while you're trying to do that work. And, uh, and so I, I began teaching, and I did what many um, postgraduates do who, uh, who pursue degrees in English writing, and that is I, I taught writing uh, at uh, various places, some universities, uh, at, at community colleges and places like that. Um, and I did that for quite a number of years, uh, almost 10 years, before I finally landed a, a full-time position as a community college professor. And uh, to be honest with UEW, when I introduced myself to people I haven't met, I, I introduced myself not as a writer, uh, but as a community college professor. Uh, and uh, and it is it, it's that I get, it's that way that I think about myself. I've been teaching at a community college for 25 years, and uh, anyone who has attended a community college or who has uh, uh, taught at a community college knows that the experience is, by some measure, different than uh, the experience you might have at a university or a four-year college. And I'd like to interject. I'd like to interject at this moment, sure. just let you know and, and listeners know if they don't know. That's my day job too. I'm a community college professor, so ah, yeah, very good. I, I know well, what you're talking you, about. Yeah. You know well what I'm talking about. Uh, that your listeners uh, may not know, may not, uh, but but you and I both know that that it, most community college are colleges are open enrollment institutions, and so there there is no there are no uh, you know SAT scores or minimum uh, uh, ACT score requirements to attend. And uh, and so you take essentially take all comers and and many times those are a high percentage of well not not the higher percentage but a very significant percentage of students are those who are um, adult learners students who who have come back to school after anywhere from three to five to fifteen to thirty five years um, away and and it, it's been a 
I, I guess part. I guess the best way to say it is, is a significant portion of my life's work has been has been working with uh, all community college students, but but uh, the ones that leave a significant impact on me are those adult students, like the ones I mentioned in the essay, like Reggie, who have returned to school, who have uh, faced some pretty rough circumstances uh, in their lives and are uh, trying to map a new course for them uh, with varying degrees of success. And uh, and I think, you know, I, I in, in the essay, I... I want to make particularly clear that that I don't align myself socioeconomically with the, these students because you know I have the privilege of making a decent salary as a community college professor and 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 have been able to um, you know raise my children and uh, and so on successfully on the salary that I've earned. Uh, but I think uh, in terms of uh, the, some of the struggles that 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 students have to to um, uh, get an education, to graduate, um, to uh, pursue a perhaps uh, dream deferred, uh, is is somewhat similar to my own experience. Uh, trying to pursue um, a, a writing career with with uh, varying degrees of success, and usually. Uh, success that was extraordinarily modest, and uh, I, I, while I may not be, em- be able to empathize at times with my students, who you know are coming from uh, often uh, working class backgrounds, uh, sometimes from uh, blighted neighborhoods, sometimes from uh, schooling that was inadequate or insufficient, or or uh, literally uh, built school buildings that were broken down. Um, you know, I, I haven't had those experiences, uh, but um, I have had the experience of, of struggling to uh, try to fulfill uh, a dream. And uh, I see that in my adult students, and I admire uh, their uh, tenacity against what I consider to be significant odds uh, at success. So um, that's what kind of led me to, to write the essay upon reflection, upon the, on the sort of eve of the publication of the book to look, to look at my own long road to arriving at that point and recognizing the long roads that my uh, students travel as well. And and uh, the long road you're talking about is actually getting uh, a book uh, published? Yes. Uh, you know, I... I, I, it, it, <laughs> so how, I, I don't know. I, I, you're in your 50s? Are you in your 50s yes, now? Yes, I'm, I'm in my 50s. I'm almost... 60 years old and uh and you know i it's interesting it's it, I, like i said i, I it, it mirrors sometimes uh, adult students i i uh as i said years ago or many years ago back in the early 80s i graduated with my msa and, and sort of fancied myself a writer and i uh would at that time i continued to write attempted to publish short stories uh but you know life the other elements of life get in the way and, and it is I wasn't ever able or not, I didn't want to prioritize my writing over um, spending time with my children I had a strong sense of you know duty about teaching students in, in, in the classroom and uh, when you're busy being a, a father and you're busy um, teaching it's, it, it can be difficult to find time to write and there were stretches of those years where I kind of gave up entirely. I stopped writing fiction. I would 
maybe write a handful of poems a year. I'd send them out to uh, literary magazines here and there. And, uh, you know, and, and sometimes they'd be accepted, but often they would be rejected. I have, I, I, I you know, have had that very common experience that writers have of, of being, uh, experiencing a lot of just warm rejections and things like that. Um, but this book, I, I, this book was something different, right. though. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It, 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 I mean, I can't. I wish I could account for and tell you and account for the reason why this book was, you know, successful, and the other manuscripts that I had written were not, because I had I had produced, oh, in the last twelve or thirteen years, um, a couple of novel manuscripts and a couple of collections of short stories. Uh, but you know, I guess one serves one apprenticeship. <laughs> one way or the other in, in, in this kind of thing. And uh, after many years, I, um, I, 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 was, I, I sent this book out to a, a group of agents. The, an agent jumped right on it. He worked with me on it for six months, and then he went and shopped at the publishers, and it was taken within a few days. And I was, I have to tell you, I was very pleased, of course, and also astonished. It was something I, at this point in my life I had not expected. And, and it's titled All That's Left to Tell, which sort of is uh, poignant given what you just described. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a novel that is, that is really a, a, about storytelling as much as anything. The premise is that a, um, a man who is, uh, has, whose marriage is just dissolved has sort of fled the country. He is a, he is a, uh, uh, a businessman who works for uh, Pepsi Corporation, and he has gone to Pakistan to work in their offices in Karachi. But while he is there, uh, his estranged 19-year-old daughter um, is killed, and he, because of his sort of psychological state while he is there, he does not come home for the uh, funeral. And he is he, he starts wandering in neighborhoods that he shouldn't wander in, and he... Uh, and, and uh, a, a, a unnamed group captures him, and the book opens at that point, and he is being interrogated while blindfolded by a woman uh, who is American, but who is uh, aligned with this group in Karachi, Pakistan, and really it, it sort of has that socio-political uh, overtone. But it, it, it really is not a novel about that. What happens eventually is they. She comes to talk to and interrogate him while he is blindfolded, and she kind of takes an interest in him because she discovers what has happened to her daughter. I mean, to his daughter, excuse me. And uh, and then they start telling each other stories, and um, the man who is blindfolded, whose name is Mark, tells stories of his lost daughter and his memories of her to Josephine, who is his interrogator. And uh, what Josephine does is create stories to tell Mark uh, as if his daughter had lived. And so she creates stories of uh, his daughter, whose name is Claire, um, that as if she was in her 30s and had a child and was uh, on a road trip. And so uh, they, they, the, the novel really develops over the course of its pages in their exchanging of these kinds of stories. Uh, and um, I think the premise of telling of those stories, beyond the sort of solace we find in storytelling, is that um, both of these individuals have suffered significant losses in their lives, and um, the story kind of, I mean, the novel sort of runs on the premise that grief 
to be both a generative force in our lives and also a very destructive force in our lives. And uh, 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 I think there's, there's an overriding theme for the novel. That's it. Wow. Uh, that was great. Uh, very compelling to, to hear. I'm very curious as, as to see how that, how that works out between Mark and Josephine. Uh, yeah, it's it, 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 it's it's kind of it, it's a different sort of book. I'm not. I hope I'm not patting my butt myself on the back and saying that it it, it is. Well, yeah. it's, a, it's a it's a novel that sort of works on on, on various levels. Uh, and uh, my hope, I guess, every writer's hope is that is that it that it rests with their audience uh, and and that they sort of think about it consciously and subconsciously um, in the wake of finishing. Yeah, that, that's what a good book does to you. Or, you know, if, if you yeah. watch a film and three days later you're still thinking about some of the characters exactly in the storyline. Right. Yeah, you know, it, it was good. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, memories, estrangement, estrangement, excuse me. And uh, I also I was reading a little uh, research on you that Dr. Pavi shared, uh, and I saw also that you mentioned, and I think you hit on it, that not talking, not talking could be an issue with people too. In term, oh yeah, you you mean in terms of in terms of not talking about their uh, uh, experiences and so on. Yeah, how that could be almost a, a sort of um, unless I misunderstood it, it could be almost like a, a a sort of violence when people refuse to talk to each other. Uh, yes, yes, indeed. I mean, I, um, I, I think that that's very true and I think it's it's true in you know it's interesting that you should mention that because I think it's true in in the novel that I that I uh, have uh, the novel I wrote and also to a, to a, to a smaller extent true in the essay that you referenced um, I, the novel itself has a it, it has a kind there's so many sort of imagined scenes in the novel, but there, there, there is there are, there are strong elements of, of violence that that, I, that exist in the uh, in the novel, and some of them are you know uh, are are fairly some of it is fairly graphic. It's not like it's a, a horror film or anything, but some of it is fairly graphic, and and I, I, yeah. It is in the telling of those stories, of the characters, the stories that I think that the, that, that the characters find uh, relief. Um, yeah, she. One of the Josephine says that that at one point in the novel that she she says she doesn't like the word radicalized because she would be someone who's perceived as radicalized, and she said she says that she's radicalized by grief. But it, it, but it's sort of in telling the stories that she tells to Mark that clearly she gets, even though the stories are not necessarily comforting, she the she gets comfort from telling those stories. And I think yes, in in, the, in our silences, uh, when we when we turn away from from telling our stories and speaking them, uh, that is when. Uh, you know, unresolved. Well, I suppose I'm over psychologizing, but unresolved conflict can can build in us and and and, and cause us to strike out. And better to do that in terms of story than to do in 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 actuality. And in and in the essay too. I mean, I, in the essay I wrote uh, with with regard to Reggie, who 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 didn't speak a lot about his 
individual experiences, but who, who had a difficult time. But he found, this is just kind of another side reference, but a, uh, an essay that, written by the Pittsburgh writer John Edgar Wideman about his brother Robbie, who, uh, who you know, John Edgar Wideman is a highly uh, decorated uh, writer, and his and his brother is in prison for the rest of his life for his involvement in a crime during which another man was killed. And his, his the book that he wrote about that experience is really about him and his brother sitting down while his brother's in prison for the first time in their entire lives and really telling each other stories about their lives. And so uh, the experience that Weidman has, the experience that Reggie had to a certain extent, and uh, certainly the experiences of the characters in the books and some of my own experiences about the importance of, of, of storytelling at the kind of, uh, it can be a force of good um, and uh, something that we uh, cling to in times of uh, in difficult times, in times of hardship. Yeah, and and I, I see it as in the way you're describing it. For the person who is telling the story, it helps them while they are telling it, and also for the person hearing the story, as well as for the two of them together by sharing. Yes, I, I absolutely. Uh, and you know, I think like well, you know, storytelling goes back so so far, whether whether it comes through, you know, in, in, in drama or song or, or poetry. And, uh, and it, it, I, so many people uh, and peoples over the course of human history have, have, have cherished and held to their stories uh, at, at extraordinary uh, risk uh, to them, to themselves, to, to um, the, the faith that they may have to, uh, their families, they've, they've passed on these stories and, and told these stories. And I think, I think that the stories are in, in incredibly important uh, to individuals and many people, you know, literally risk their lives to, to preserve their, their, their own stories or the stories of their homeland, uh, or the stories of their people, the stories of their culture, the stories of their tribe, whichever, uh, you know, words you'd like to uh, use in that context. And, uh, and I think that speaks to their power. I think it's, it speaks to their uh, comfort. I mean, we can, we can sit down with people very different than we are. Even someone like, you know, Reggie in the essay whose experiences in life are very, very different than my own. And, and we can you know, talk about some of our experiences and, and exchange uh, stories of our own and find ways of connecting because while the mm, stuff of our stories or the, the, the specifics, the, the you know, images, what, um, the characters of our stories might be very different from one another, often are the themes of those stories and the experiences, no matter how far apart, uh, we may live uh, figuratively or, or geographically. Um, like you said, it, it provides a moment of connection, of, of sympathy, if not empathy, of of understanding. And uh, uh, if we can, uh, you know, it is idealistic, but it is also hopeful to say if we can listen to each other's stories and truly listen uh, and listen uh, and find a sort of connection in the human condition when we exchange those stories, I think that... Um, you know, we we 
we grow uh, as uh, individuals, uh, and no matter uh, what period our li- in our lives we may uh, be in when we hear those stories. It's just like you, uh, the U.S. Congress, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I tell you what. <laughs> I figured I'd make you laugh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so they're getting along so well. Uh, in fact, <laughs> as we speak, they just did away with the uh, filibuster. Uh, filibuster for Supreme Court uh, uh, nominees. Um, yeah, yeah, I think uh, it's the antithesis of what you're speaking of. <laughs> yes, exactly right. And, and, and no, I mean it's interesting because we live we live in an era where you know at least if, it, if it's a political moment that we seem. And I, I'm, I'm as guilty of it as anybody. I, you know, it's 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 very very difficult to listen to the stories of others whose points of view are so dramatically different than yours. Who could support? Uh, you know, who have supported candidates like my own parents, for instance, uh, like like Donald Trump, and uh, and and you know, and still find common ground and and and, and uh, uh, you know comfort and human connection I mean it, it is it is a, a particularly interesting moment in history I think in that capacity it, it is it truly is uh, but the humanity is where it all re- we have to rely where we have to go and, and that's what you're speaking of I mean that every every aspect of of your essay that you've explained and uh, the uh, of the novel that you've shared, it's really about the humanity, and once that's lost, everything else is just empty talk or you know exchange of of sentences and, and barbs. But the humanity is not there. It seems that that's key. What do yeah, you say? I, I, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, in the novel, there are two minor characters um, who are Pakistani, and 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 they both are, uh, you know. They kind of they both they, they speak you know a, a different language than than uh, they speak or do they they don't speak uh, much English uh, like unlike Josephine who's his chief interrogator but they are the two male characters who you know kind of watch him when she is not there but, and you know I, I I'm not yeah I'm not I don't have the the I don't have experience in living in Pakistan. I haven't visited Karachi, and so it was a, a bit of an adventure to to presume that I might know, uh, you know, well enough to write about these characters. But but what the one character is, is sort of involved with this organization reluctantly. He has a child of his own, and he needs to make some additional money. Another character uh, who watches him is is slightly more militant and has, but he too has suffered a loss and he's he's lost his wife. Um, and and you know, if I am able to, I, I, I was I worked and struggled to write those characters in a way so they wouldn't seem wooden or two dimensional uh, as too often we see you know, you know people who uh, from from other nations, especially from other cultures, uh, other faiths. Uh, I, I wanted to be able to imagine the, them in their lives and their struggles and give them a sense of, uh, as you put it, humanity that would be recognized despite their involvement in the work uh, that they're doing as, as, as 
as terrorists, as people who would call them at least terrorists. And, uh, you know, I guess I, I, I think that's so critically important. Uh, you know, someone might say to me, well, how in the world uh, would you be able to write about two, uh, you know, uh, men who, who, you know, have, who lived in Karachi and lived in poverty their entire lives. And that's a legitimate question because I haven't had that experience. But, you know, if we surrender our capacity to extend our imagination to, um, to try to imagine the lives that others who are very, very different than us live, well, we uh, have surrendered something, I think, extraordinarily important. And um, uh, our, our, uh, our futures are bleak indeed. I mean, we, if, if we can no longer imagine what it might be like to um, live the way someone significantly different than us lives, and, you know, I think that's one of the great things about writing is that you have the opportunity to um, extend your imagination and try to enter the minds of characters who might be fundamentally different than you. Uh, and and yet, um, you know, I think it broadens and extends your own uh, sense of what it means to be human and, and all that that involves. Uh, Beautiful. It's just, yeah, it's just critical that we that we are able to imagine the lives of others. And one of my chief criticisms, just to go back quickly to the political thing with Donald Trump, is he seems to be, you know, utterly incapable of uh, imagining what it's like to be someone other than himself. And and uh, and I, I I don't know I don't know what leads a person to become to have that perspective, but uh, uh, those people I, I find most troublesome in my private life and, and, and indeed in those figures in the public life. Well put, Professor Lowe. I think we're going to have to leave it there, given the okay. time. But what a wonderful conversation. And uh, uh, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to give you the opportunity to share some contact information so people could uh, track down some of your work. Sure. Sure. That's great. Um, but, you have a website or Facebook? Or? Yes, there is a there is a I do. If you search uh, Facebook and you um, look up my name, there is an author's page, and you can find my website at it's a, my full name Daniel J Low D, uh, Daniel as you would expect J A Y Low O W E dot com. And there's a website there, and there is a contact page there. If people want to uh, send me an email or ask any questions, I certainly would be uh, most pleased to receive those. And again, Professor Lowe's book titled All That's Left to Tell, recently published, getting really great reviews. I can't wait to pick up my copy. Thank you, for so, thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Thank you so much, E.W. It's been my pleasure. Take care. Everything I do gonna be funky from now on, yeah. Everything I do gonna be funky 
Washington Senators game back in the 70s, I spotted a character actor I recognized from television and the movies. He was wearing sunglasses, slightly hammered, and yelling through a popcorn box that conveniently turned into a megaphone. Are you an actor? I asked. I am, he said cheerfully, and gave me his name and some credits. Norman Alden. The name might not ring a bell, but, as with all character actors, the face and the voice would feel as familiar as your next-door neighbors. He appeared in dozens of TV shows and movies. Notably gruff and burly, he was on everything from The Jack Benny Show, as Man with Iron Bar, to Jerry Lewis's The Patsy, as Bully at the Gym, to Tora Tora Tora, as Major Truman Landon, to Mary Hartman Mary Hartman, as Coach Leroy Fetters. He played a lot of coaches, cops, and other authority figures. My favorite Norman Alden role was horrible Hank Hopkins in Kansas City Bomber. In that 1972 film, Raquel Welch, the bombshell du jour, played an unlikely roller derby queen, and Alden a wild man player 
who eventually cracks up and rides around the rink screaming, if memory serves, Sui, the pig call of the character's native south. This scene alone makes it a classic of roller skating movies. It was something of a golden age for roller skating in popular entertainment. Rollerball, a corporate thriller with James Caan, dramatized the dark side of wheeled entertainment. Xanadu, with Olivia Newton-John and, oddly, Gene Kelly, was a musical about one of the Greek muses who comes to Earth to inspire men and spread the good news of disco. A legendary disaster then, fondly remembered camp now. There has always been a whiff of camp, if not cheese, about roller skating. It conjures the ambiance of the bowling alley and lacks the brisk flair and romance of ice skating. Our local roller skating rink, Skateaway, sat on top of Taylor Hill in a borough next to our depressed former coal town. The borough was notable for its abandoned collieries, where once unlucky little boys sorted coal, and burning coal dumps, which glowed night and day, a noxious and unsettling reminder of our past. The roller rink was fairly new, yet still shabby, brightly colored, yet frayed, with an aroma of stale popcorn and shriveled, days-old hot dogs. And, as at a bowling alley, you could rent the roller skates you wore as you rolled round and round beneath the disco ball, amid the colored lights, awash in the pop music of the day. Jimmy, the floor guard, was the star of the rink. He had a pompadour mullet combo, helmet of hair, as adamantine as any blue-haired ladies do, fresh from the beauty parlor. And he wore tight, loud polyester shirts, unbuttoned low on his hairy chest. He glided backwards with his whistle at the ready, followed by schools of teen girls awed by his masculinity and grace. He flirted, they flirted, perhaps there were brief dalliances with a few of the older girls. I would hope that as a skating guard, he had his professional ethics, like a lifeguard or an airplane pilot. Jimmy benignly swirled around the floor, occasionally roused to whistleblowing, dashing across the rink and stopping on a dime at the sight of ruffians fighting over a giggly girl in a halter top and short shorts. I wonder what became of Jimmy. Is he slouched in an easy chair, his pompadour long gone, his tarnished whistle in a junk drawer, watching cable news in a daze? Or did he follow his heart to San Francisco and live, briefly, a fabulous life far from the coal dumps of his dreary hometown? I was a horrible skater, even after my mother bought me my own skates and I could practice weekly. Early on, I careened around the rink, praying that I wouldn't bash into fellow skaters, particularly the girls, who sped by me like goddesses, trailing the ambrosial scent of cheap perfume. Eventually, I could stay upright and not embarrass myself too much. Nothing fancy, though, not like those annoying show-offs who twirled and curlicued and bobbed and weaved among us slower-moving 
stooges. A night at Skateaway was divided into types of skating for different groups, with a sign that lit up for each type. All skate, where parents and kids and teens and loners would head on the floor en masse, foxtrot and waltz for the old-timers and serious skaters. Kids only, a catastrophic jumble of children of all ages tormenting one another that ended in scrapes and tears and piercing whistles from Jimmy. Couples, the romantic part of the evening, where moody blue lights bounced off the disco ball as lovers clinched and ground loins while slowly advancing on eight wheels to the strains of I Honestly Love You. The most hopeful and painful type was advancing skate, where couples lined up, and when the whistle blew, the boy moved on to the next girl, a primitive form of speed dating with less talk and just as much anxiety. Every time I had my eye on a particular girl up the line, hoping to make my shaky way past three less tempting girls, the ooga-chucka, ooga-ooga, ooga-chucka of hooked on a feeling began. The lights brightened, the clear floor sign lit up, and the girl of my dreams skated back to her no-doubt brutish future mate. So ended another night of heartbreak at Skate Away on the top of Taylor Hill.
Crepe Suzette bird tweet in the budding branch of an April damp tree as footsteps my chihuahua breathes into his gate. I sit back and wait. For my man Got twenty-six dollars In my hand Up to Lexington One, two, five Sick and dirty For daylight Waiting for my man Hey, white boy, what you doing uptown? Hey, white boy, chasing my women around. Pardon me, sir, it's the furthest thing from my mind. I'm just waiting for a duty friend of mine. Oh, I'm, I'm waiting for my man. Here he comes, he's all dressed in black PR shoes and a big straw hat He's never early, he's always late First thing you learn is you always gotta wait a while Three flights of stairs Everybody's pinned But nobody cares He got the words Gives you a sweet taste And you gotta split Cause ain't no time to waste A while Waiting for my man Hey baby, won't you holler, don't you ball and shout I'm feeling good, I'm gonna work it on out I'm feeling good, feeling so fine Until tomorrow, but that's some other time around I'm waiting for my man I'm waiting for my man I'm waiting for my man I'm waiting for my, 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 my man I'm waiting for my man I'm waiting for my man 
I'm waiting for my man I'm waiting for my man I'm waiting for my man And there you have it, episode 222 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks that made this episode possible. First and foremost, author and professor Daniel Lowe. Nice talking with you, sir. Make sure you check out his recently published, highly acclaimed novel, All That's Left to Tell. i also like to thank Michael Pavis, Dr. Michael Pavis, our associate producer and essayist. Also, of course, these wonderful musical artists. Billy Holiday, Joe Cocker, Alan Toussaint, Dire Straits, Garland Jeffries, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. Until next week, take care of yourself, and thanks for listening.